Welcome to Veterans Chronicles. I'm Greg Corumbus. Our guest in this edition is retired U.S. Army Colonel Ludwig Feistenhammer. He is a veteran of World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And we're also going to talk about his time in Special Forces, which included a very interesting deployment to Germany in the 1960s. And Colonel, it's a great honor to have you with us, sir. Thank you for your time. I'm happy to do it. Thank you, sir. When and where were you born? I was born in Munich, Germany, on the 2nd of June, 1924. And what was your childhood like in Germany before the Nazis came to power? Beautiful. (laughs) I played a lot of soccer. Your family left Germany and came to the United States in 1929, which is a few years before the Nazis came to power. Why did your family decide to move then? My father uh, got tired of his his mother. He had an older brother already here and a younger brother already here, and they talked him into it, I'm sure. And so uh, where did your family uh, live when we, it came to the U.S.? Binghamton, New York. What are your memories of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor? How did you hear about it? Oh, it was in the newspaper and on the radio. At that time, there was no TV yet. Do you remember what your reaction was at the time? Were you shocked? Were you confused? What were you thinking? Oh, we were shocked. We were shocked. Uh, My father always said, if you ever have to go to war, just keep your ass down. So you were about 17 years old uh, when when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Uh, when did you join? I, when did you join the service? January 43. And were you drafted or did you enlist? No, no, no. We uh, we were on the draft list, but we told them we wanted to go early. Five of us from the neighborhood. Why did you choose the army? I really don't know, but I. I suppose because my father was a soldier in the German Army in World War One. Where did you do your training after you enlisted? Camp Croft, South Carolina, outside of Spartanburg, South Carolina. It was a World War One training camp. What kind of training did you do there? Was that basic or more advanced? I did uh, basic training and also I became an anti-tank gunner. And what was that training like? What did it consist of? Great. It was uh, a five-man team pulling a 37-millimeter gun by hand, you know, uh, with straps, and and we'd shoot and have target practice and everything else. And, and that's what put me in tanks, I guess, because I was a 37-millimeter gunner, you know? What unit were you assigned to? 702nd Tank Battalion. And when were you sent to Europe? We were attached to the 80th Infantry Division, and we went to Europe right after the invasion to England. Yeah, right after D-Day, we went to England. What was it like to know that you were going to war against the country you were born in? I never gave it a thought. I was the guy. It was just a matter of staying alive. Do you remember your first combat experience, where it was, and, and how it compared to what you expected? When we landed in Normandy, the first thing that happened was my platoon leader and his lead tank 
ran over a mine. So that was the first experience we had of an explosion and a loss. And so there were casualties as a result of that mine? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, sure. And then uh, we continued on, and I can't really tell you the dates anymore because I never really worried about dates, you know what I mean? <laughs> but we we fought Lyon. We were at the Bulge, naturally, and uh, I did a recon job for the 4th Infantry Division uh, under General uh, X. General Abrams. He was a lieutenant colonel then. Let's talk about that mission a little bit. You received a Bronze Star, I think, for what you just described there. This is in November of 1944, and according to the citation, on your own initiative, you did reconnaissance on a German position near the river in Alloui, France. Explain why you did that. A lieutenant who had been given the order asked me if I'd go along. And I said, sure. What happened on that reconnaissance? According to the citation, you you came under significant fire, correct? Yeah. And I think we were in a small, small French town that we finally hit. If I remember right, I saw these two Germans in a through a window and got both of them. What did you learn on your reconnaissance that helped the mission the next day or whenever it was conducted? I think it wound up as the headquarters of the German unit that was against us there. We just happened to run into it, you know? What was the key to defeating them at that spot? Well, the object of the game was we had to wipe all that area out to continue to march up to... uh, Leon. Talk a little bit about being a tank commander in combat. Uh, You mentioned that you were with the 702nd Tank Battalion. You were also a tank commander. So what responsibilities did you have in that role? Well, the responsibility was that uh, you made sure that all your other four people were always on the ball and and, uh, a good gunner and machine gunners, and a loader, and a driver. And uh, so, uh, and your responsibility was making sure you saw the target and hope that we hit it every time and, and continue to march, you know, forward. Well, we just mentioned a moment ago that uh, this reconnaissance and then the action that followed that was on the way to Lyon. And uh, you're also, of course, very active in fighting there. What do you remember about your actions at Lyon? We had a, a good fight, if I remember right, until we broke through and went into the town of Lyon. That was one of our goals, is to capture uh, and free the city of the Germans. How much of a role did the tanks play there? Talk about how the tanks helped to win the day. Without the armor, I think the infantry has a lot more problems than normal because the armor has the heavy weapons and and does a, a better job, you know, protecting them and, and letting them come forward at the same time. The biggest problem in, in World War II was the gunnery 
on the tanks in American service, the 88 was the German Tiger tank. And the 88 would go through, in fact, we had one hit, the lead tank, as we were going through the uh, cutout hedgerows, and uh, it went through three tanks and lodged itself in the fourth tank. So uh, our weaponry at that time was a little light. We had a 37 millimeter on the light tank, and the recon tank, which I was in, and uh, the others uh, had 75 millimeters and 105s, but they were still not the weapons that we should have had against the 88. And then, Colonel, you mentioned uh, the bulge, which was not long after that. Uh, how did your yeah. How did your unit approach that area, and what was your role in the battle? The bulge had a, a great big flat area and then wooded area on one side and wooded area on the other. And uh, we were told to just hold up on one side until everybody caught up because it was up a hill. I remember going up a road uh, uphill and we got ready there and uh, we were there at Christmas. One thing I remember, and I think this is very interesting, the Germans sent a message over Christmas Eve and said, no shooting until tomorrow because tonight we celebrate Christmas. And they sang Silent Night in German. I remember that. I remember that. And it was colder than heck, you know. Yeah, how did you deal with that? The, the the temperatures were terrible there. Well, remember, uh, if, if you remember the uh, GI blanket type uh, zipper uh, for the sleeping bag, what I did for myself, I cut arm holes in it and leg holes, and I just wore it all day long. <laughs> <laughs> that's the ingenuity. That that's the ingenuity that won the war, right there. I, that kept me pretty warm, really. I mean, but uh, it was very cold there. Yeah, it was very cold. Evidently, we did a hell of a job there because I remember uh, my company commander came and said, tomorrow morning we're, we're in the attack. I think that was on the 26th of December. We did a good job that day. We lost some medium tanks, but... Uh, the light tanks, uh, our platoon was intact in all the way, and we did, a, as far as I'm concerned, we did a pretty good job. Were you up against German armor or infantry positions? What was uh, on no, the other in, side? Mostly anti-tank and infantry. Anti-tank guns, yeah. How would you describe the enemy and how they went after you? They were very aggressive as far as... but. They didn't move against us much. They waited until we had, they had a good target, you know, when us going through open fields and stuff. I have to say this. The German soldier overall was a pretty good man. You have to give him credit, too. Uh, And, in fact, that morning, I, I remember capturing, the infantry captured some guys 
and I talked to him in German because I asked him where my cousin was, and they said he was in Ukraine. <laughs> when you're in combat, you don't do a hell of a lot but trying to save your own butt. Where did you go after the bulge? After the bulge, we were in Regensburg. They asked me to re-enlist if I would and make me a sergeant first class, and and I said, no, I'm sorry, I want to go home. So I went home, but in the meantime, my company commander let me have a Jeep, and I drove all the way to Mark Schwaben to visit my oldest uncle who owned a department store down there. And uh, I stayed there a couple of days and visited and saw a lot of people that I knew, you know, that were still alive and stuff. And then uh, I came back and, uh, and then I said, it's time to go home. So I went home, came home. But at that time, uh, yeah, when I came home, the decision was, what are you going to do uh, when you come home right away? Well, my father was in the uh, structural steel business, and uh, so I worked for him for a while, and then I decided I better go to college. So I went to St. Bonaventure, and that's where I got commissioned in the ROTC. And that was very good. Uh, I met a lot of good guys that had been in the service and and uh, they all most of them went back out of active duty i went back out of active duty after getting commissioned and uh, my third year because the army said i could finish up college in in you know on active duty uh, that was good so my first assignment was uh fort jackson south carolina that was a training uh, division at that time, 5th fifth, fifth Division, I think it was, if I remember right. And then from there, I went out to Salina, Kansas, to Fort Riley, to be an officer, in, uh, a lieutenant in the 10th Mountain Division, which was stationed there at the time. And that was going from, you know, working from... A battalion to different regiments and stuff, because that was a, uh, a beginning of going to regular army officer. I made that okay. From 10th Mountain Division, Fort Raleigh, Kansas, we went to, uh, I went to the Rangers. I volunteered for the Rangers at Fort Benning, Georgia. Tell me about that training. Well, that was good. That was good. Went to jump school. Became a paratrooper. The training was outstanding. It was it was very good. I stayed in the Rangers until uh, they announced special forces is available and needed people right away. So I was one one of the first to volunteer for special forces at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And from that point on, I was special forces. Uh, if I remember right, it was almost 20 years. Colonel, we're going to pause and it right there. Uh, we're going to come right back, take a short break, and come back with much more of your story because, believe it or not, there's a lot more to tell. Uh, I'm speaking with retired U.S. Army Colonel Ludwig Feistenhammer. I'm Greg Corumbus, and this is Veterans Chronicles. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Veterans Chronicles. I'm Greg Columbus. Honored to be joined today by retired U.S. Army Colonel Ludwig Feistenhammer. He is a veteran of World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Special Forces, and was also uh, on a very important deployment to Germany in the 1960s. And, uh, sir, you were just talking about being one of the first people to transition into Special Forces and at Fort Bragg. So what happened next? From there, I... I was in one of the companies that they had formed initially. Then after that, we had training and uh, and different things. And being a a swimmer, I was responsible to organize uh, the swim test, which they're still using uh, for special forces at this time of uh, my life. <laughs> They're still using the yeah. test you designed? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they've changed it to certain extents, but it was that. And then, you know, one of the things that we never could... When I was commander of the 10th Special Forces Group, I set up a, a 16-man team that volunteered with me to swim the English Channel. Nobody ever allowed us to say that. So I'm, I'm a little leery on even mentioning it to you, but I'm so proud of that because we did it just to show the world, and we're the only unit in the world that swam the English Channel to show that it can be done with dry suits and combat gear and all that stuff and we swam 17 hours from Dover to St. Jacques. And St. Jacques was already France, naturally. But we found out a lot of things that other people would never even have thought of. We found out that just because you had all the dry gear and everything and you got out of it and you were still, you, you just weren't worth a crap for at least 24 hours because you were pooped out 100%. But otherwise, uh, that was a great thing. And uh, the picture of uh, that is in the museum at Fort Bragg, Special Forces Museum at Fort Bragg. I have a picture of the, the gang that swam the channel. They had me... It was General Collins, God bless his soul, who I enjoyed very much as my, not immediate boss, but interim boss in Germany when I was commander of 10th Special Forces Group Europe at Bad Tools. And he and I got along very well, And but he said, I don't want to hear one thing about it. Just do it if you want to, and I, I can't agree with you, so I won't let you do it, but you have to do it on your own. 
So that's what I did. I I said, well, we're going to do it because I know we can do it. The finest soldiers in all U.S. Army. In fact, there's one, my Sergeant Major, uh, uh, Sergeant Major Pioletti, Command Sergeant Major, who was my Sergeant Major of the Special Forces Group. Uh, he's dead now, but my first Special Forces Master Sergeant was John Fryer, and he's still alive. And I talk to him at least once a week, just to make sure we're still in the same ball game. <laughs> <laughs> always, yeah. always good to check on. Where were you uh, when the Korean War broke out, and, and during that time, what was what was your role? I was on my way to Korea, and I was getting on the airplane when they said, you're not going right now. I said, why? Well, my father passed away. So they let me go home for five days. And then I came back and went to Korea. But Colonel Burdett was one of the battalion commanders in the 4th Infantry Division in Korea. And he, he, instead of letting me go to the... 173rd or one of the airborne units, he said, I need that guy. I need Lou. He and I were friends from the 508 at Fort Benning when he was the S3 and I was uh, uh, one of the lieutenants in the anti-tank business. That's why I wasn't in the 173rd. I was company commander of a heavy mortar company in the 4th Division. We went on a mission my company were going on a mission, and uh, we had an unmarked minefield. It was not, not on a map or anything, and and we hit a minefield, and that ended everything right there. And then the wounded guys, we all went back to the hospital, and then they sent us home. In Vietnam, I was three years. My experience in Nam was outstanding. I think it was outstanding. The first tour, first year, I was chief of training for the Vietnamese uh, Airborne Division's troops because they had all kinds of uh, platoons, but they didn't have any battalions or anything like that. So we were at Trung Lap, an old French Foreign Legionnaire uh, camp, and so we turned that into a Vietnamese training center for companies and platoons and and uh, squads, and, and we did that. And then my second tour in Vietnam, I became Corps Commander of Second Corps Special Forces and ran that for a whole year. And then uh, instead of coming home, uh, the new commander of uh, Special Forces at Play Coup asked me to stay another year because he says, I need you. So I, uh, you know, I went on R&R and told my wife where she met me on R&R that I wasn't coming home. And, well, you know, that wasn't too happy. But anyway, we went, uh, 
we spent R and R together, and then she went home, and I went back to Vietnam and took over Fourth Corps Special Forces for the new commander. And uh, it just so happened that the new commander—I can't remember his name—but he had a heart attack in the Pentagon after he left Vietnam and passed away. But anyway, that was about it. And then when I came back from Vietnam. Uh, I became the combat command development at Fort Bragg for the Special Forces organization and uh, did that, and then I retired there. Well, let me back up to a couple of things that you mentioned. Uh, first, back to Vietnam. I don't know if whether it was in, while you were commanding the 2nd Corps or the 4th Corps, but uh, you are known for destroying an entire battalion of Viet Cong. And it was not only military action, but you were working the situation behind the scenes to set it up. Explain what happened there. I can't tell you how I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently the Viet Cong uh, had a Frenchman commanding it for some reason. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, now that you mention Frenchie. Yeah, (laughs) Frenchie was a a two-squealer. He worked both sides, American and Vietnamese. And he was in charge of a rubber plantation. And we used to train uh, the Vietnamese in the rubber plantation as a training place outside of uh, Trung Lap. One day, uh, after we really found out that he was uh, using both sides, why... uh, we had an exercise, and I was down there with the company commander, Vietnamese company commander, and I was walking around, sort of, and uh, we saw him, and we figured, well, that's the end of that. So I shot him, and I figured it was worth the shooting because he was he was a two-faced son of a gun, you know what I mean? How did you destroy the battalion? I think what what happened is uh, we were on that exercise, training exercise, when all of a sudden we get into a, a hell of a firefight, if I remember right. And so I gave the word, do not move, but just shoot like hell and we do everything we can to, to get out of there without losing a man. And I don't think I lost more than one man. But we got it. I think it was right there at Trunglap, if I remember right. Well, let me, let me press my luck here and ask you about another one. Uh, you also had a successful jump into communist-controlled areas to set up a base designed to confront oh, a yeah. North Vietnamese airfield. What can you tell me about that jump. one? We just, <laughs> oh my gosh, the name of the place we were going into was Buprang. My uh, counterpart, Colonel Kong, and I talked about that. I said, uh, what do you say we make a, a, a jump in there instead of walking in and having a firefight right away? And he said, well, let's, let's, see what we really want to do. And I said, fine, yeah. So we did. I decided we'd parachute in 
And so he furnished most of the guys, and I furnished the leaders. We jumped into boot prank. Did special forces have different rules of engagement? I really don't think so. I think we we did everything as we saw fit to save our guys and do a good job at the same time. I don't remember any special rules or anything to do things, you know what I mean. Uh, so, especially in my core where, where we were strictly mountain yard infantry and uh, my teams, we had 12 camps and my A teams were 12 men and, you know, they, they ran the whole show. Colonel, we're going to pause one more time. When we come back, we'll talk about your time in Germany the second time, not World War II, uh, but when you were there in Special Forces. We'll be right back. Our guest Uh, is retired U.S. Army Colonel Ludwig Feistenhammer. I'm Greg Corumbus. This is Veterans Chronicles. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Veterans Chronicles. I'm Greg Corumbus. Our guest in this edition is retired U.S. Army Colonel Ludwig Feistenhammer. He is a veteran of the U.S. Army, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, also Special Forces for some two decades. And, sir, in the 1960s, you also spent some time in Germany with Special Forces. This is after the Berlin Wall went up, and uh, you were sent to a place called Bad Tolls. What was your assignment there? Uh, when I first came to Bad Tolls, I was a, became a team leader. In other words, I had uh, 12 enlisted men working for me. It was a team sergeant, a weapons man, intelligence sergeant, radio communication, and uh, right on down the line, you know, infantry and the other guys were just regular infantry weapons men. But uh, they learned all the jobs. We had, oh, our medic. Our medic was very important. The thing that was good about me being in Germany is the mayor of Bettos knew my grandfather, who owned a big dairy farm in Tegensee. And so when I got there, and first met the Burgermeister, who was the mayor of Bad Tolts. Well, it, it was like meeting your father, you know, or your uncle. And it was great. It was great. Well, from that time on, we had uh, a heck of a nice operation. Because when I came back as a colonel and took over the place, why... I I had no problem, and not only that, being able to speak the language 100%, uh, I didn't have any problems with my people or their people or anything, and we had a lot of uh, soldiers in special forces who were Lodgeville people, 
those were the people that after World War II were offered to come as long as they spent time in the service, they would get their citizenship and so forth. In fact, one of the great things of my A-team was at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. President Kennedy came to visit, and I had a team of Lodgeville boys. They all spoke a different language, and myself speaking German. So when Kennedy came by, we all spoke languages, and not English to the president. But we greeted him and everything, and he was happy as, you know, you know what. So, so it was it was a lot of, a lot of times we had great times. I mean, great times. And then in Germany, uh, our greatest visitors were the Secretary of the Armies. You know, they were uh, visiting all the time and uh, seeing how we were doing and so forth. And we had our own airfield, so we had a, uh, the Air Force had no problem uh, landing a C-130 in our airfield and then taking off when we needed to parachute jump or go somewhere. And we had our own L-20 and helicopter and so forth. But it was it was a great assignment, I w- and I was fortunate. They left me there as the commander for five years, which is very unusual because normally normal commands were two years in Europe. So it was very good. Did you have any confrontations with the communists? No, no, I had no problems with them. In fact, when they came out, one time they were out across the street from the Kasern and... Uh, the MPs that we had assigned called up and said, sir, we, we got a little problem out there. I said, well, just leave it alone and we'll come out and take care of it. And that's what we did. We chewed them away and they never came back. <laughs> All right, I got one more question about your time in Germany. It's about something I read about you and I want to know how true it is. It said you were almost elected mayor. Is that true? And if so, how? I don't. I really don't know how that happened. I I heard that, but I I don't really know how that happened. I don't. I think they just were just shooting the breeze about it. You know what I mean? I I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I I they often called me the mayor, but but it was just a, such a good relationship that we never had any problems. You know what I mean? Obviously not if you were the most popular figure in town and you weren't even a local, but uh, that's that's pretty impressive. So, Colonel, last question for you. Uh, after such a long and distinguished military career, what are you most proud of from your time in the service? Oh, Special Forces. Special Forces. Most proud time of my career. Uh, it was the greatest thing I ever did and then accomplish uh, for the Army. Fantastic. Colonel, it's been a true pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. And of course, thank you very, very much for your incredible service to our country. Okay. Enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it. 
Retired U.S. Army Colonel Ludwig Feistenhammer, a veteran of World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Special Forces for two decades, and as you just heard, an extensive stretch in Germany that was very successful. I'm Greg Columbus. This is Veterans Chronicles. Hi, this is Greg Columbus, and thanks for listening to Veterans Chronicles, a presentation of the American Veterans Center. For more information, please visit AmericanVeteransCenter.org. You can also follow the American Veterans Center on Facebook and on Twitter, we're at AVC Update. Subscribe to the American Veterans Center YouTube channel for full oral histories and special features. And of course, please subscribe to the Veterans Chronicles podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and please join us next time for Veterans Chronicles. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.